Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. So friends, here we are in the book of Ephesians. We've been having what I think has been an amazing sermon series called Into the Mystery. There's a degree to which we cannot fully get our heads around who Christ is and what he's did. We've been looking at the power of Christ, about the purposes of Christ, the primacy of Christ. Then if you noticed, about halfway through, the book started getting very practical, talking about unity in the body of Christ, talking about spiritual maturity, sexual and other ethics. And today we're in the topic of godly submission. Now, it's not a very popular one, I'll grant you, but it is one that I think if we unlearn some things and if we focus in on Scripture and allow it to change us, I think it is going to be amazing. The truth is, I think in our culture, we have some baggage to do with submission. We've seen enough tyrannical, narcissistic leaders that we immediately have a knee-jerk reaction against it. And also, frankly, we've been hurt. We've been wounded We've uh, personally experienced bad leadership, and so we draw away from it. What I'll say is today, as we let the words of Scripture speak to us, that we might come with a new and fresh perspective on it. We're going to be reading here out of Ephesians 5. We'll begin at verse 21. And you know, the thing is that this letter, when it was first given out to the churches, the home churches around Ephesus, people would have been hearing it uh, on their benches or in their kitchens, much like today. Uh, this, This was meant to be spoken out. It wasn't meant to be read. It was meant to be heard. And I'm going to read it out. It's a bit of a chunk, but actually it takes maybe two, two and a half minutes to read it through. A friend of mine said, hey, this is such a clear scripture. You should just read it. Then we should have some extra time of of, music worship together. Uh, But then we realized the more we got into it, the more the trick is in the application of this. So I'm going to here put on my, uh, the first week I've been using reading glasses, talk about a fresh perspective on scripture. So here we are. We're in Ephesians chapter five. We'll start at verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, 
controversial. We're going to come back to that. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever they do, whether they are slave or free, whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And finally, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. God, as we come to your word, we do so soberly. We do so asking, Lord, that it would shape us. God, if anything in me is offensive uh, today, just let that drift off with the wind. Let my brothers and sisters not take that on. But Lord, if there's something in your word which is offensive to us, then let us see that as a precious gift that we could grow, that we could be sanctified, that we could be shaped for you and for your purposes. So give us insight now in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. About six weeks ago, we got some chickens in my household. We got five little week old chicks. As it turns out, they grow rather quickly. So I've spent pretty much, apart from when I've been doing church stuff, every waking hour either thinking about or building a chicken house. My wife downloaded online, 46 page plan for it. So it's kind of a Taj Mahal for chickens. And we've got these hilarious names. My kids have named them names like masala, you know, chicken masala, chicken burrito, chicken nugget, chicken schnitzel. And uh, actually, as it happens, I have a sense that one of them might be a rooster. So one of them may, in fact, end up as a chicken nugget. We'll see how that goes. But here's the thing. Have you ever noticed how chickens operate? There's this thing called a pecking order. There's the head chicken And they are kind of the boss. They're generally the biggest or certainly the most bossy. They run around. If one of the other chickens has got a worm in its mouth, they'll run up and how dare you have the worm? And they'll go up and and they'll grab the worm. And then next down, there's the second chicken, kind of the deputy chicken. Now this one, it gets bossed around by the, the senior chicken, but it bosses around all the other ones and so on. And so it goes all the way down to the last one the lowest one in the pecking order. Now, this chicken is often a sorry chicken. This chicken is often, you know, like the runt of the litter. It's has, you know, feathers pecked out of its neck. It barely ever gets a worm. When we come to this concept of biblical submission, I think we bring a lot of junk to this. Like I said before, I think because of our culture, our culture of rugged individualism, I'm the boss of me. How dare you boss me around? How dare you think that you can tell me what to do? How dare you lord it over me? And because of woundedness, because we've seen poor leadership, some of us have been hurt by it in one of these categories. I think that we need to come at this with fresh eyes today. At the beginning of chapter 5, Um, the first thing that I want to do is look at God and then the second thing, the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome this. The beginning of chapter 5 says, follow God's example as dearly loved children. As Mark said last week, the Greek word for that is the the word that we get um, mimic from. Okay, we're to mimic God. Let me begin by, you know, a new lens on this concept of biblical submission by talking about the Trinity. Now, there's lots of mysteries in Scripture, but one that I think maybe after wondering why God would love a wretched sinner like me, that I want to talk with him about in eternity is this concept of the Trinity. 
if you're new to the whole Bible and theological thing, that's cool. But it's this wonderful mystery where there is one God in three persons. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful, wonderful, amazing paradox that exceeds our capacity to understand it. But they are all equal. They are all God. And yet within the Trinity, there exists submission. The Son, it says, submits himself to the will of the Father. In Philippians 2, it says he submitted himself to death, even death on a cross. The Spirit, of course, submits to the will of the Son, but that does not denote inequality. That does not denote some form of asymmetry in it. They all are equal, all are God. So the first thing that we need to unlearn is thinking that when we come to this concept of biblical submission, there's something that lacks inequality. No, they can coexist. In fact, they do coexist. The second thing is this. In 5 verse 18, it says, Be filled with the Spirit. It kind of operates as the beginning of the sentence, which culminates in the beginning of what we read before, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But the implication is that we are unable to do that without the power of the Spirit. But the Spirit is not just a one-off thing. It's posturing ourselves towards the waterfall of the Holy Spirit, God's grace and kindness given to us in increasing measure. The phraseology there is, is keep on being continually filled in an ongoing sense with the power of the Spirit. So just by way of preliminary things, those two things, let's think about the lens of the Trinity and let's think about the power of the Spirit because I think without either, without both of those, actually, I think we're going to have an inadequate understanding of this. So what I thought we'd do is I thought we'd move through these different categories that the Scriptures spoke about from the least controversial to the most controversial. So you can hold your tomatoes ready that you can throw at the screen later on. We're not quite there yet. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It seems self-evident, a biblical truism. Except that for some of you listening, that might not be the case. Some of you have experienced at the hands of your parents awful things. Acts of omission, acts of neglect, and worse. I just want to say right from the outset, here and in each of the other categories, there is no room in the understanding of biblical submission for tyranny, for oppression, for one person lording it over another. No, Trinitarian submission is different to that. It's power under submission, as a guy called Greg Boyd talks about. Life giving, giving your life for the good of another. But for most of the kiddos in our church, and I thank God for this, you do have godly parents. So what does it mean to obey them? And in fact, it even says to honour them. My kids sometimes whine about things. They're wonderful kids, but sometimes they whine. Oh, I don't want to do the mowing. Oh, I don't want to do the dishes. And I'm like, I don't want you to want to do it. I just want you to do it. And while you're doing it, keep a good heart about it. Because the heart is so important, right? Submission is more than just obedience. Submission is joyful obedience. And it's a hard thing to teach our kids, I'm not going to lie. But one thing for sure, in fact, it even happened yesterday with my son. He said, Dad, you know, I see how you are with Mark and Bob, the leaders of our church. I see how you joyfully submit to them. And my kids know and love them as people, but they also see that they are in a position, God has put them in a position of power under, of lifting our church up and caring for me and caring for us. And they, they see that. So parents, what I'll say is this. If you are swinging in the breeze, if you have no real authority, 
to lead you and to care for you, then you have no authority. If you're not under authority, then you have no authority. But we're called to this, and the kids are called to this, to honor it, and there's promises that come with that. But then it talks about fathers, and by implication, mothers. Back with the gogs. What does it say? Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Don't exasperate them. Don't be capricious. Don't move the goalposts. Don't confuse them. Don't confound them. But what does it say? Bring them up in the instruction and in the training of the Lord. You know, it's our huge call as parents to shepherd our children. You could win the world to Christ. You could do amazing things. You could be a multi-gasquillionaire. But if your children turn and walk from the Lord, then I think that that's a very heavy thing to grapple with. We're to bring them up in training and in instruction. You know, in Hebrews uh, chapter 12, it says, uh, no one likes discipline. It doesn't seem pleasant at the time. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Spiritual discipline. All of us, ultimately, every person before Christ is going to be disciplined. Here's the thing. We get to choose whether it's formative discipline or whether it's corrective discipline. I know what I'd prefer to choose. Formative discipline, being shaped and molded after Christ as we follow him, is so much more enjoyable than corrective discipline. I mean, God does both because he loves us, but likewise with parenting. Instill into them, shepherd into them the formative disciplines of what it means to be a person of integrity, a person of the book, a person who follows Jesus and loves him. And at times you might need to also instigate some corrective discipline too. But the whole point is to move them towards a place of interdependence. When I was a young guy, an early teenager, my father sat me down and he said, son, you know, when you were young, you're in a place of dependence. He said, the trouble is most people move to a place of independence where they turn and they do their own thing. It becomes a rebellious spirit, actually, and sin and rebellion are really synonymous terms. I'll do my own thing. No one tells me what to do. And my dad says, I I don't want that. I want us to move from this relationship of dependence, which is right and proper when you're young, to move to a place of interdependence where we can know and trust each other, where we can support each other and encourage one another. And of course, that's the goal. So that one, not very controversial. Let's wind up the dial a little bit. Here it says, slaves obey your earthly masters. Now, if you're coming to the Bible, you know, and you're a young Christian, you might be tempted to think, wow, is this condoning slavery? I just want to say on the authority of the word of God, categorically, no. You know, the Christian abolitionists, Uh, for whom the Bible was a key text, like Harriet Stowe, like uh, Charles Finney, um, you know, like William Wilberforce, these guys, the Bible was their key text. In it, it has a high anthropology, a belief that every single person is made in God's image. Every person is invested with the image of God. No one is to be oppressed. No one is to be subjugated. No one is to be beat down. You know, I'll say historically this as well, that as Christianity grew in antiquity, as it thrived and grew, that slavery diminished. 
Later on, we know that through some toxic and I believe uh, absolutely wrongful renderings of Scripture and a good smattering of social Darwinism with a belief that, that white people were at the top of the totem pole, um, 17th and 18th century, some people sort of read into the Bible a kind of a, a warped and strained view, and our country is still paying the price for that. But friends, uh, on the basis of the Word of God, there is no place for slavery. Here, it's Paul's pastoral words to us. He's saying that if you find yourself in this imperfect system, if you find yourself a slave, and a third of the people hearing this in Ephesus, historically speaking, were slaves, how do you act? If you find yourself in a broken world, how do you act? And there's a really interesting biographical note here. I find it interesting. Let me dork out for a second on it. The person who carried this letter to the churches around Ephesus, the home churches, was a guy called Onesimus, himself an ex-slave. Onesimus escaped from his slave owner called Philemon, and he traveled thousands of miles away to Rome. He was in prison there for some reason, and he met a guy in prison called Paul. And this guy called Paul introduced him to a guy called Jesus Christ, and he decided to know and love and follow Jesus Eventually, he got out of prison and Paul wrote these letters, the letter of Ephesians, which we have and read out from today, the letter of Colossians and the letter of Philemon. And he gave those letters to Onesimus and another guy, Tychicus, and sent them those thousands of miles back to Asia Minor that they might give these letters to the churches over there. So geographically speaking, it's likely they traveled through Ephesus first and then eventually through Colossae and the churches around there. And finally, that Onesimus came to his old slave owner, Philemon, and he gave him the letter of Philemon, which I think is one of the great emancipation uh, little chapters in Scripture. In it, it's masterful. Paul says, Philemon, this is Onesimus who escaped from you. Now, under law, Philemon, you can do whatever you want to to him. That's a, a common agreement. We all know that. But I need you to know, to know that he is now a brother in the Lord. He has now found absolute, eternal, true freedom in the Lord. And I'm giving him back to you. I'm giving back my very heart to you, he says. And he also says, and I know that you'll do the right thing. Now, we don't know how Philemon reacted to that. But history tells us that Onesimus, the escaped slave, went on to become a bishop in that area. So it's likely that Philemon did the right thing. But either way, sorry to dork out for a second, but don't think that we read this and think, whoa, the Bible condones slavery. In fact, quite the opposite. But how can we use this for ourselves? What's a, a, an analogy that we can use? I think a pretty clear one is us as employers and employees. So what should we do? Well, we should, uh, we should uh, respect them and, and fear them in the sense of awe and, and kind of you know, reverence with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, says a parallel passage. We're called to do that because ultimately it may say our employer's name on our payslip, but ultimately it's Jesus himself who we're working for. So we should be the most diligent. We should be the most honorable, the most integrous, the most faithful employees. And it says here that we should be doing that um, not to win their favor when their eye is upon you. Not just being people pleasers, literally it says that, or, or giving eye service is the literal rendering of that text. Not just giving eye service, not just when they're looking at you, but at all times. 
Could you imagine if every Christian was the very best employee? And then after a while, the employer finds out that they follow Jesus. Wouldn't that be a great witness? But then it talks to masters or to those who, in our analogy, are employers. Treat your slaves in the same way with this honor. Give them honor. What does mutual submission out of reverence for Christ look like for employers? You ought to treat them with the God image that they have been vested with. Don't threaten them. Don't treat them poorly. Employers, don't treat them as a unit of production to squeeze out every little droplet of blood and sweat out of and then to discard them. You've been given a high calling. Friends, God has given you this responsibility to care for them materially, to care for them emotionally, to care for them spiritually. What a high calling that is. Ultimately, it says, don't neglect to remember for one second that actually their master is also your master, and that is Christ, and one day you will have to give an account to him. This is a high calling. So how are you doing? You still with me? Am I rubbing anyone the wrong way? If it's me, like I said, don't even worry about it. But if it's the words of Scripture, maybe we should be taking it in. Here we come, and this is where fools fear to tread, to be talking about the marriage situation. Now, whenever we talk about marriage in church, I'm aware that there's some of us who just switch off, think this doesn't apply to me because I'm single and they always blather on about married people. I want you to know that I think there's principles here that are very useful for human conduct in general. And you know, some of us uh, in our church are single by calling. You're amazing. Some of us are single because, you know, we've passed through divorce or other reasons why we're single. Some of us are single and want to be married. And there's heartache. And when we talk about topics like this, I just want you to know that I hear your hearts. Some of us are married and want to be single. And for you guys, well, hey, we've got a whole uh, marriage counseling center that can be of a blessing to you. But this is going to be a hard teaching. I'm not going to lie to you. How do we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? Well, first, the words are to wives. And it's going to be hard to hear. But before you write it off, before you think this is a feminist nightmare, just stick around and see what the text also has to say to husbands, because I think that you're going to find it's even harder on them. It says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head or the leader. The husband is the leader, the servant leader of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. The husband is called. If you're a husband, you are called to be the spiritual leader of your home, the spiritual servant in your home. Servant leadership, remember Trinitarian submission and what that looks like? We've got this battle going on within us, this battle within us, this civil war within us. Don't fall to the wrong side of that. What does it look like for a wife to be doing this? What does it look like for a wife to submit to their husbands out of reverence for Christ? There are times when a wife is called to give in. So for me and my wife, we've been together 27 years this week. And you know, she's a brilliant woman. She's 10 times smarter and 10 times kinder than I will ever be. And there are times when after looking at all the data, when, when praying together, when talking at length, when I'll say, honey, I know that you are thinking that we should go to the right. After taking all this in and doing the best that I can, I think that we need to go to the left. And my wife she will say, I know you love me. I know you serve me. 
and I'm going to bring myself underneath that cover. And it doesn't happen every week or even sometimes every month, but there are times when it happens. If that sounds harsh, friends, well, I apologize. It's the words of Scripture, and I think it's pretty clear. There are times when a wife is called to give in, but the husband is always called to give up. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He gave his life, his very life, up for her. I did a marriage last weekend to this wonderful couple, Sean and Vanessa. And when we were standing there at the altar, before, before Vanessa walked down, I looked at Sean and I said, is this a good day to die? And he looked at me and he had this big smile on his face and he said, yeah, Nick, this is a good day to die. He knew why I was asking him that because in pre-marriage counselling, I'd said, mate, do you know what is happening that day? Do you know why you're traditionally wearing a dark suit that day? It's because you're going to your own funeral. That day you are publicly declaring before all the witnesses, I'm no longer going to be living for the good of myself. I'm going to be living for the good of another. This is a heavy word. Where does a groom stand? Think about it. When a marriage takes place, the groom stands at the altar. What happens at the altar? Sacrifice happens at the altar. It happens that day in the public declaration and it's worked out through a life of mutual self-giving, the husband giving his life over for the good of the wife, power under leadership, Trinitarian submission. There's total equality, but that is the way that the husband submits to his wife to live for her good, not his good. Doesn't matter about our love for golf or our love for surfing or our love for butter chicken. No, 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 that's of less significance now because you are living for the good of another. Husbands, if you have ever made the mistake of saying to your wife, well, you need to submit to me, at that point you need to know that battle is absolutely and surely lost. Don't you ever dare say that. Leave that to the wife to sort out. You selflessly give yourself, whether she submits or not, you selflessly give yourself over to be serving her relentlessly, lovingly, without ceasing. That's godly submission. Am I rubbing anyone the wrong way? a bit of a battle going on within you right now. I can feel myself being shaped and molded by Scripture. It's a good cut, isn't it? But you know, the most controversial one of all, I think, is one that we mayn't have first thought about. It's Christ and the church. What does submission look like there? Well, we can see that Christ selflessly gave himself up for the church. He died on a cross to take our sin upon his shoulders Not just the punishment for sin, but the very sin itself. He had done no wrong, and yet he took your sin and my sin, and he took the shame, the awful things that have been done to us, he took it and he finished with it. He gave of himself. God, God the Father, gave his Son the very most giving thing of all. But you see here, down in verse 27, It says he did this, why? To present her as ultimately a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And we read that and we're like, crumbs almighty, that's just not the case. My goodness, have you ever been to a church? I mean, every church I've ever been to is full of broken, awful, no good, very bad people. And I'm sure I'm the worst of it. 
Have you ever heard that saying, if you ever find a perfect church, whatever you do, don't go there. Because as soon as you walk in the door, it's no longer perfect. There's a paradox here. There's an irony here. There's something going on here that we need to get our minds into. Something that I found insightful on this is a theological distinction to do with sanctification, to do with positional sanctification and progressive sanctification. Here's what I mean. Being sanctified means being set apart for a purpose. We have been loved by God. We've been justified by the work of Christ. And now we've been in a position of love. We're in a position where God sees us and sees us as perfect. But there's this thing going on where we know, if we're honest with ourselves, that we are not perfect. Oh my gosh, we know our peculiarities. I'm talking about as people, let alone collectively. Oh my gosh, as I said last time I preached, we know the shortcomings of the church. She's not exactly pure and spotless. You know, she's got a ripped dress. She's got a black eye. She's missing a tooth. She's got some tats that she regrets. Oh my gosh. But Jesus sees her as beautiful. Jesus sees you as beautiful. Jesus says, you are my hands. Church, you are my feet. As a whole and in part, you are my hands and my feet, the local expressions of the church. I see two things coming out of this, and then we're going to close and and do some work in prayer. The first thing is this, that we should not do the devil's work for him. The devil's work is to tear down the church. Don't be the person who gossips. Don't be the person who who sends out a divisive email. Let's not be those people. Let's be the people united, especially right now. And the second thing is that we as a church get to pour out our lives individually and collectively. Like I said at the beginning, today we're going to have the missions offering. And the missions offering is going to be going towards a work of refugee care, where eight or nine churches locally have been uh, combining to work with churches in the Middle East to care for refugees in Jordan and in Lebanon and in Iraq. And even here in San Diego, combining together. So some of us will want to financially give to that. Over time, as we roll it out, some of you will want to volunteer for that. It's just one of the ways that this church is pouring itself out to care for the community around it. But friends, this is, I think, ultimately the hardest, or should I say the most exacting part of all of this scripture, that we submit every part of our life to Christ. We may not like it because we like our own truth, In our postmodern age, we think, I can have my truth and you can have your truth. Have you ever heard the phrase, well, that's your truth. You just live in that. That's just not true. There is truth. We might not be exactly able to identify it, but there's no such thing as your and my truth. There is just the truth. And I know that that's not popular, but we need to ascertain that. I had a friend say to me a little while ago, he said, Nick, you just do you. And I looked at him aghast and I said, that's a terrible idea. Because I'm an idiot. I shouldn't just do me. I should do Jesus. Friends, I think this is the most exacting thing of all. What would it look like for us to do Jesus by way of bringing ourselves into godly submission? Friends, there is a battle going on within. Next week, we're going to be looking at the battle going on without, the spiritual battle, the cosmic battle. But this one is a civil war that's happening within us. As we come, I'm going to pray now, and then we're going to go into a song of worship. But as we do, I would just ask that we would open our hearts up to the Lord, that we might ask him, Lord, 
Do I need to renew my understanding of godly submission through the Trinity or through the power of the Spirit? Maybe in one of these contexts, in parenting or, or maybe in, in being an employer or an employee that honors you. Maybe it's within my marriage. Maybe it's in lordship as a whole. But I want to say this. There is a blessing in bringing yourself into a situation of godly submission. Years ago, my wife and I moved across country and we moved to a new city and we felt God calling us to go to a church that was very different to what our kind of preference was, a very conservative church. I'd grown up in a church much like North Coast Calvary and my wife had just been radically saved and was new to faith, but we were there and we ended up being there for seven years. And you know, I don't think a week went by when I didn't say, Lord, can we leave? Because this is just not our preference. It's not our likes. The theology, not on gospel things, but on secondary things is different to what I want. And either God always said no, or he said nothing. And of course, when God says nothing, that also means no. It means abide by what I last told you to do. And I'll say that even though it was not our preference, our years there were so magical. Looking back, they were formative in our ministry life. We still have dear friends that we're in contact with from there, and it was amazing. Friends, there is a blessing when we bring ourselves into relationships of godly submission, and I know that there's fear, and I know that you've been hurt, and I know that our culture tells us not to do it, but that is what I believe the words of Scripture say. So let's lift up our hearts now, and then let's worship together. God, this in many ways is a hard teaching. But Father, if it's of you, and I believe it is, Lord, I ask that you will mold and shape us according to your likeness. God, I ask that you be working on us now, speaking by the power of your spirit. If there's things that we need to be working on, Lord, that you'll quicken it to us. Lord, it's such a strange time right now. We're dispersed, but Lord, let us surround ourselves in you. Let us center ourselves in you and be empowered by the Spirit to be the people you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.